You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, uh, for most of my 20s, really from kind of sophomore year high school on into 30 years old, I was dealing with what I'm just going to call sort of, uh, sort of a low hum of depression. Really, that's what it is. And I, I don't, uh, I had a really hard time discerning what was going on in me. It was weird because I, I had been a Christian for a while. So I didn't have that to point to as, as like a, a problem. I was living an obedient life. I was real zealous. If you had run into me somewhere on the street, I'd probably be sharing the gospel with you. So I had just all the zeal, all the things on the surface uh, looked right, but inside it was just uh, like for a decade. And I, and I didn't know why. It felt to me like, you know, that image of like pushing a, a, like a beach ball underwater. Felt, uh, a lot of my life felt like that. I'm just holding this thing down kind of grinding it out, and I, I, I don't feel great, but I know this is the job, and you know, at any time, something's gonna pop out of the water at me. And uh, over the years, God freed me from it, and he used a number of things to do it. He used uh, his people, he used this church. He used uh, his word and so many passages and books of the Bible that helped liberate me from it. One of the things that he used, though, in my late 20s to sort of rescue me from myself uh, was a 19th century horror novel, which is not what you would think he would use. But uh, there you go. I, uh, I read a book, a little book, by a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys remember that book? Right, from high school, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like 100 pages, it's not very long. Uh, but it uh, totally upended uh, my life. I, I remember reading, if you need a briefing on what it is, uh, real quick, uh, it's a story about these two characters, uh, Henry Jekyll, who's, uh, he, he's in London, he's a, a, a laboratory scientist, a, a medical doctor, fine upstanding member of his community in mid-1800s, uh, a good guy, a guy that you would, uh, you, you'd want to leave your kids with this guy. There's Henry Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll. On the other side, we, we find out about this character, Edward Hyde. Now, Edward Hyde is sort of the anti-Jekyll. He's sort of this violent, vile, sort of golem looking creature like not cool like not someone you'd run want to run into in an alleyway in fact uh, as the story goes someone does run into him in an alleyway and he beats him to death with a club so not a charmer but these are our two characters Henry Jekyll uh, and, and Edward Hyde and of course if you know the story at all you only know it for that last scene right the detectives are looking for Edward Hyde for the murder of that guy and they go to his friend's house, Dr. Jekyll. They knock on the door, he doesn't answer. They bust down the door and they're into his laboratory. Jekyll is dead on the floor. On the laboratory desk is a note written in Jekyll's handwriting that says, the whole time you thought you were looking for Edward Hyde for the murder of that person, you were really looking for me because I, Dr. Jekyll, am... There it is. 200 year old spoiler alert, so sorry about that if you haven't read it, but uh, that's a thing. So they were not two guys. Right? They were the same guy. Dr. Jekyll was Mr. Hyde. Hyde was Jekyll. Jekyll found in himself, he wrote in this book, these impulses in himself that he wanted to act out on, but he couldn't because he was a nice guy. You, know, you can't go around doing those types of things. But he devised a little potion that when he drank it, it would turn his body into someone else so he could act out of the impulses that were already inside him. But the shocker of the whole book is that whether you're seeing Hyde or whether you're seeing Jekyll, you're seeing the same person on the inside. It's just the exterior that's different. The bad guy 
and the good guy are the same guy. And as I read that, I was haunted by it. That thought terrified me <clears throat> because I saw myself in the book. I saw I can do good and not be good. And that, that thought was haunting to me. Or to put it another way, I can make myself nice, but I can't make myself new. Do you see the difference? And I, 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 it wasn't that I had a problem on my outside. Remember, I was, I was doing the right things out here, but the, I was looking inside and seeing that there was a problem deeper than what was happening at my hands. At the level, not of my hands, but at my heart, I had a problem. And I wasn't able to change that. So I could be nice on my own, but I couldn't be new on my own. And that really frazzled me and woke me up in many ways. Now, why am I telling you that story? Well, we're in this series formed. We started it last week with Rodney, and, and we're in it for the next months together. And as we're working through it, if there's one if there's a way that you can talk about what we're wanting to do in this series together. It is we are wanting to equip you to live as new people, not just nice people. That, that's one of the ways to talk about what we're doing in this series. And to do that, we need a strategy that gets at something deeper than what we do with our hands. We need a strategy that goes all the way down to who we are, all the way down to our heart. Does that make sense? Now, the world doesn't get this, right? For, for just centuries and millennia, the, the world has, has tried to throw everything at this problem that they can to, to no avail, right? We, we've tried to throw religion at this thing, right? So, so we get involved in all these religions, and, and we're, you know, we've got a new playbook that we're running, and, and it's, I'm going to run these plays out of this book. This book tells me that if I do these certain things a certain way, uh, at the end of it, I'll be okay, I'll be whole, I'll be formed, I'll be changed. And so we, we run these plays, but of course there's a problem with that, right? Religion was never designed to tap into anything more than your hands, what you do. So you get the seven sacraments, or you get the five pillars of Islam, or you get the, the, the four noble truths of Buddhism, but at the end of the day, those are all things that are targeting your activity, not who you are on the inside, not your identity. It's not dealing with your heart, and so it's dysfunctional. It doesn't work. Jesus himself said this. Remember, we talked about it last week with, uh, with Rodney. Jesus is looking at the religious elites of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says to them in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're what? They're full of greed and self-indulgence. He's saying, hey, you're Jekyll on the outside. You've got it good here but on the inside is Hyde. It's Edward Hyde the whole time. Right? And it doesn't work. We, we know that. And, and some, some Westerners have sort of wised up to that and gone, oh, well, that's, uh, that is problematic. That doesn't work. And so what a lot of us in the West have done is we've sort of jettisoned religion over the past 100, 200 years. And we said, well, that, that must uh, not work. Let me try something else. I'll try the sort of grit and grin and bear it thing. I'll try the moralism. I'll try the self-help thing. But the problem is on the other side of that ditch is the same problem. You're still doing things that ultimately just target what? They just target your hands. 
They don't get at your heart, except now you have a new problem. You're not doing that for some God out there to appease them. You're doing it for yourself. You become your own God. So you have the bonus of becoming a self-idolater as you're doing that. So on either side of the spectrum, you see there's a problem. We are, we are being told to do certain things, act certain ways, uh, absorb these certain behaviors and, and, and act them out, but they're only targeting our exterior, not our interior life. And it's a problem. It's dysfunctional. Now, some of you, at this point, you hear that and you go, yeah, I've run both those plays. And it hasn't worked for me. I, I need something better than good advice. I need good news. And so many of us in this room, you have looked to Jesus and you have seen his death and his resurrection and his ascension as accomplished for you. And what you did is you believed a promise one day. You believed the promise that he made to you, trust in what I've done and you'll be saved. You'll be whole. And you did that. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was two decades ago. But you've done that at some time in your life and you come into the family of God and you're changed and it's wonderful. But if you're honest, some of us might say, I've done that, but the life change I was expecting on the other side of the cross hasn't quite happened. Because I'm, I'm, I'm doing the things now, I'm, I'm saved, I'm doing the things, but it still feels like that beach ball thing where I'm holding it down and, and I'm doing stuff good on the outside, but inside I'm seeing lust is still running rampant in my life. Anger is just right at the surface. I'm just full of anxiety and worry and fear and pride and something's wrong. Didn't I get saved? Like, didn't I, didn't I, aren't I his now? Why can't I change? And I want to submit to you that it could be because you and I have believed a lie about this thing we call Christianity. And the lie goes something like this. I'm saved by good news but I'm formed by good advice. I'm saved by good news, but, but I'm formed by good advice. We take this book and we look at it and we go, man, there's some things in this book that are uh, telling me about my depravity and how I need to trust in Jesus and he's gonna save me. And so I read those parts of the book to, to get me saved, but then there's all these other parts of this book and these parts of the book tell me like what to do, like how to grind it out. Like now I'm saved, now I'm getting to the meat and the meat is I obey these laws and rules and rituals and then, and then I'll grow in, in godliness and character and that's how we understand this book. And what happens is when we think that way, the gospel becomes this thing that happened to us over here in Salvationville, right? Way back when, when you weren't a Christian and you trusted in Jesus and the cross was beautiful to you and you clung to him and it's, it's precious to you, but it's there and you've moved and you've walked. And as you've walked, you've walked with your rules and systems and five tips to a better life away from the cross. And, and the cross is no longer as relevant for you here as it was there. And when you think about the cross, you tend to think about it as an experience I had back in my conversion. But that's not Christianity. If that's how you've understood this thing that we're doing, that's dysfunctional, it's not right. The truth is, Christian, you are saved by good news, and you are formed by good news. That's Christianity. If you've wondered what this thing is about, you are saved by good news, and you are formed by that same good news. Good advice can only change our hands. 
It will only change your exterior, but only good news can change our hearts. And so we never, ever move on from this place. This isn't JV and here's varsity. That's not what it is. It's always this. Do you want to grow in the Christian life? It is the gospel of Jesus that you think on, see, embrace, treasure, hold on to. It is, the, it is the person and works and promises of Jesus or it's nothing. We never move on from it. Seeing that and embracing him is our way to be formed. And my goal today, my one goal, is to convince you that that's what the Bible teaches. Where are we going today? That's all we're doing. I wanna show you that you can have confidence that that is the point of the scriptures for your formation. Okay? That's where we're going. So if you have your Bible, again, get it out. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're starting in verse 3. And as you turn there, uh, let me give you some context. Uh, the apostle Peter is writing this at the end of his life. This is his Second Timothy letter, right? Except he's not writing it to just one person. He's writing it to many Christians. He's uh, about to be killed. And he's writing to them essentially to tell them this. That he's telling them that the gospel is the only route to a fruitful life. That is one of the main themes happening in 2 Peter. The gospel is the, the only route to a fruitful life. And so he starts at the very beginning of his whole book uh, by saying just that. He tells them essentially this, what you need for formation, spiritual formation, vitality, fruitfulness in your life, what you need for formation comes from embracing what God has already given you. That's, that's the message. Look at verse three. He says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, stop there. Everything you need to live a godly life, according to 2 Peter 1, you already have it. That's what he just said in the text. God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. From the moment you trusted in Jesus, Peter is saying, did you know you have been equipped from that moment with every resource you need to thrive in Christ in this life, to do everything that pleases him. You're equipped with that the moment you believe. It's not like, it's not like Scientology or, or Mormonism. It's not like that where you sort of move up through the ranks as you go and as you go, you're sort of exposed to more and more of the inside scoop, more secrets, more uh, information. Uh, you uh, arrive at this level and then this level. There is no this and this level in the Christian schema. There is no moving up the ranks like that. There's no new hidden secret pocket of knowledge that you're gonna come into when you're like six years in. They're like, oh, you're six years in? Come with me. It's, there's none of that. That doesn't, that's not how it works in Christianity. All the tools you need to live a godly life and a fruitful life are on your tool belt the moment you trust Jesus. Does that make sense? And Peter says, he tells us how we got these tools. He says this, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. A.K.A. you don't do anything to get it. Right? The, the, the things that are pertaining to life and godliness, he says you don't do anything to get it. You know something to get it. You know him. It's through the knowledge of him, he says. And when we come to know him, something happens in that moment. Peter tells us what happens. God grants all the things we need to bear fruit. We know God, and then he grants 
everything we need to bear fruit. Uh, So say it this way. Christianity is a granting religion before it's a grunting religion. What do I mean by that? Grunting is a weird word. Um, It gives what it requires. Christianity gives to you what it requires of you. This is, this is everywhere in Scripture. Uh, Philippians 2, we studied Philippians uh, a year or two ago. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, do you remember that amazing verse? In there it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, that, so there's something that we're doing as Christians. We are called to live godly, fruitful lives. In Paul's language, we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Christian, you ought to be doing things Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what does the next verse say? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You work because God is working in you and through you and enabling you to do it. Or say it like Peter, verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you see? It's the same thing. Saying, there is something for you to do, but before you do it, he grants it to you. It's an amazing thing. It's like, well, what am I doing? It's like, well, you're, you're, I'm definitely sweating as a Christian. There's labor there, but it's a labor of someone who has been fully equipped to do those things and enabled by the Spirit in each moment of doing. I can't explain it to you right now. I can just say that's what the text says. It is a granting religion that we are a part of. What does he grant, though? That's the question, because Peter hasn't answered that. So we trust in him, and he grants us the resources and the tools we need so that we can live formed. What are those things? He just called them the things that pertain to life and godliness. Things is not a very helpful term. Things could mean all sorts of things, right? What are the things? Well, he tells us in verse 4, by which he has granted to us, what does it say? His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire so what does god grant us so that we would be formed what did the text say what is the tool on our tool belt the moment we believe answer promises promises What is the Christian granted the moment we trust in him? We're granted promises, and and, and not just promises. His precious and very great promises. I sat with that this week, just meditating on it. Oh, that that Peter would, would grab those two expressions to describe them. They must be that infinitely marvelous, these, these precious and very great promises. What is Christianity? You want a a one-word summary of it? It's promises. Christianity is promises. What does God give you to fight fear? He gives you promises. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, Isaiah 41.10. What does God give you to carry you in the midst of unbelievable suffering? And I have heard this week in our church family of some unbelievable sufferings that are happening. What does he give you? 
He gives you promises. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28, he gives you promises. What does God give you when you stumble in your sin for the hundredth time? That same one that's plaguing you, what does he give you? He gives you promises. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 28, he gives us promises, not good advice, good news. Do you see the difference? It's not do these things and you'll be better. It's hold on to this reality, this truth about God, that he is there for you. Promises, not good advice, good news. This is what changes us. Is this starting to make sense? Uh, I love that there's a, there's a poem from like three, four hundred years ago. Uh, some scholars think it was written by John Bunyan, but I love it. It's a short little pithy poem that describes this well. It says, to run and work the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's Christianity. We're given promises, not good advice, we're given good news. Now, if you're just thoroughly confused right now, like this is not how you understood this thing to work. If, if you need to, let me, just hang with me for the next five minutes. I'm gonna take f- five minutes before we keep going through the text and I just wanna, I wanna help it make sense to you a little bit. How, how does this work? Here's how it works. It begins with a premise. And the premise is this. God is the greatest being in all the universe. God is the most important, significant, treasurable being in all the universe. When St. Anselm, back in like the 11th century, was writing his Summa Theologica and he was writing his ontological arguments for the existence of God, he wrote about God. God is the being than which none greater can be conceived, which is a really uh, nerdy of 11th century way to say he's the biggest and best ever. He's the being than which none greater can be conceived. God is the perfection, the sum total of all perfection, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, not a drop of sin, perfectly just, infinitely kind and compassionate, supremely merciful and loving, totally satisfying. That is who he is. And whether you were ever made or I was ever made and anyone could ever acknowledge it, it's true of him. And that should be good news to us, except it's kind of not. Because if you're a sinner, like, wait for it, everyone here is, those attributes don't help you much. God being righteous isn't cool when you're in sin. It means he judges sin. It means you're under the just wrath of God. Him being holy isn't like some really special thing you put on a coffee mug when you're in sin. It means he can't be with unholy things, AKA sinful people like you and me. He says he's infinitely satisfying, but that doesn't matter because we learned a couple weeks ago that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they might not see 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We can't even see it, so we can't even enjoy the fact that he's satisfying. It's not really good news to us. Or in other words, who he is is not working for us yet. But when you trust in Jesus and you embrace the cross for the first time, you become a child in God's family. When that happens, all of a sudden, everything changes. Everything changes because now you're one of his kids. And now what happens, Christian, is everything that God is and everything that he does is now being forever leveraged for your eternal good and your eternal happiness. All of those attributes that were spooky on this side of the cross are now a treasure and a joy on this side of the cross. He changes everything. And that is exactly what we're gonna be talking about for the next four weeks. If you want a, a, a roadmap of where we're heading for the next month, we are doing that. We wanna look at how God's character, his attributes produce promises that we can hold on to. We're gonna look at four key promises that come out of the nature of God himself that will help us defeat our sin and live formed, fruitful lives. That's where we're going over the next four weeks. Now, we're pulling these particular four promises uh, from a book that, that we here at the church have really appreciated. Uh, it's called You Can Change. It's by Tim Chester. Uh, you can, I think it's out in the, the bookstore. But Tim Chester uh, has sort of um, uh, codified uh, four um, attributes of God that target sort of our main four areas of weakness as people, as sinful people, where we're inclined to go, these four truths about God grant us promises that help us. So let me, let me tell you what they are uh, so that, that you kind of have your bearings for where we're headed. Uh, there's four of them, and you can write these down if you want. These are essentially the titles of the next four sermons that we're doing. First one, God is great. God is great. Let me finish that sentence. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. What I mean by that is this. When I say God is great, I don't just mean he's awesome. I mean something like God is sovereign. He's over everything. And if he's over everything and he's my dad now because of the gospel, I have a promise. And the promise is I don't have to panic anymore. The worst day of my life is now sitting in the hands of my sovereign God who loves me and gave his son for me. So God is great, so I, I don't have to be in control. We're gonna do that whole thing next week. Number two, God is good, so I don't have to find satisfaction elsewhere. When you hear God is good, we don't mean in this instance, God is good like morally good, we mean God is good like a good meal is good. God is satisfying. God promises in his word that he's satisfying, that all, all the treasures of everything my heart could want is found in the person of God. So that means I don't have to go hunting to be satisfied. That means in our pornography addictions, we don't have to keep running to those broken wells and drinking from them thinking they're gonna fill us. God promised to fill our hearts. We don't have to go to the pantry. We don't have to go to, to our, our marriage to satisfy us or our children to satisfy us. We have the one to satisfy us and so we can live rightly in this world because he's truly satisfying. God is good, so I don't have to go elsewhere to find satisfaction. Number three, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. Our God is a forgiving 
God. It's in his nature. He is eager. It, it says all throughout scripture, he's gracious and merciful, gracious and merciful. He is gracious. And if he's gracious and you're in Christ, what does that mean for you? It means that on your worst failure of a day, which might be today, I don't know, on that day, you have a God who has you in his hand, who has you in his heart, who has you written on his palms. He is for you, Christian. He loves you and he is eager to pardon. That will change you. We don't have to be crippled by guilt anymore. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And finally, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Here's what that means. The most important being in the universe values you. The most important being in the entire cosmos treasures you. So you know what you don't need anymore? That guy's approval, that girl's approval, this crowd's approval for you to like my sermon today. I don't need it because he values me. The only one whose opinion really matters values me. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. That's where we're going for the next four weeks. If that gets you at all excited, stick with us for this next month. And then we're, after that, we're jumping into formation habits that take these principles and apply them in our daily rhythms of life. But that's where we're headed. And look, I just want to say this as we're going. This is not Tim Chester's cool idea. And this is not like Stonegate's brainchild. We figured out the, something awesome. Here. This, this is God's idea. We are formed into godly, Christ-worshiping, others-loving people through embracing promises, precious promises of the gospel. I want to finish proving that to you, so let's look at the rest of our passage, and then we'll be done. Look at verse 5. So he said all that, and then he says this, for this reason, because you, you've been given promises, for this reason, because you have those, he turns to the doing. Make every effort. Do you see it? So here, here is what God has done and is doing for you. Now we make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so he's saying, here are the character qualities of someone who has embraced the promises of God. This is what you and I should be exhibiting as Christians. That's what he's saying. You trust in Jesus, he grants you promises, and now you go out there and you live them. And let these qualities overflow in your heart. Things like faith and virtue and knowledge and brotherly affection and kindness and love. Let those things bubble up in you. It's appropriate. If they are in your life, he says, good news. You're going to be effective, Christian. If you're seeing these things in your life, and you should feel encouraged. If you're seeing these things bubbling up in your life, Things like uh, kindness, things like love for others, things like self-control. If you're seeing these things come up, you should be encouraged. He tells you, you know what that means? 
you are effective. You are going to have fruit in your life. These qualities produce a fruitful life. He's saying you're, you're formed. You're being formed. And it's, it's starting to show in your life. So be encouraged. We don't always have to be dismal like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst. If you're seeing this, celebrate that. Say, thank you, God, for helping me in this. But what if you're not seeing this? What if you're here this morning and you heard that list and you're like, oh, ow, oh, 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 I wish you didn't say that one. What if that's you and you feel more like that? How does Peter diagnose us when we feel like that? This is why I think this is one of the most important passages on this issue in the entire Bible, what he's about to say in this next verse. How does Peter diagnose the problem? He says, for whoever lacks these qualities, meaning, so you don't see these things in you? You're not seeing love for others, you're not seeing affection, you're not seeing self-control in yourself, you're not, you're, you are constantly at the whim of your appetites, you are hot-headed, you are lustful, you're doing these things, if it's, those are the qualities in you instead of the other qualities? You're not seeing these? What does that mean? What does Peter tell us? For whoever lacks these qualities didn't try hard enough. No, wait, that's not it, hold on. Oh, yeah. He says this, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you realize what he just said? Are you not seeing fruit in your life? Are you just a mess of sinful appetites on your inside? And you're wondering why that is? The Bible just diagnosed you and I. What did it say? The reason you don't have self-control or godliness or love for people, you've forgotten the gospel. You have forgotten the cleansing of former sins. That is exactly what Peter said. Your heart will not be formed by good advice. It will be formed by good news. And if you're not seeing formation, love for Jesus, character, godliness grow in your life, it's because you've forgotten good news. This, I, I hope instead of feeling discouraging for you, this feels like a breath of fresh air and clarifying. This, we, we have our answer. What's our problem? We're not staring at the cross. We've forgotten our pardon. We can't live like this. Listen, and we try, we so try. I, I, I know all of us in this room have, have been fighting against sin, but, but maybe so many of us have been fighting it in the wrong way, and that's what, not, why we're not seeing any progress. So you might be able to squash down your anger toward your co-worker like, like a beach ball and just holding it underwater. You might be able to do that, but that will not stop you from hating that guy. Yeah, you're not guilty of murder on the outside, but you are on the inside. You could password protect every device in your entire life, in your entire office, your entire home. You could password protect everything to avoid pornography addiction. But that's not gonna stop you from seeing people's objects. It just won't. It's, it's helpful, it's good advice, but it's not good news that changes here. You, you could get so in shape, y'all, diet and exercise your way to, till you're Dwayne Johnson. You could do that, right? 
and you finally got your appetites under control and you, you know, you're not going to the pantry and you'll be able to say no, you're drawing those hard lines, but it will not stop you from being body obsessed. It doesn't have the power to do that. You could get all your finances in order. You might be in total debt and, and, and you're ready to wipe it out. So you go through the classes and we got classes here. I think classes are great. It's important, it's helpful. You can get all of that taken care of, be totally debt free and still worship money. What difference does it make if you're debt free, if you still love money more than Jesus? It doesn't. We have to be formed by more than good advice. We have to be formed by good news. We need gospel promises that God is great for us. God is good for us. God is gracious to us. God is glorious for us. We have to have gospel promises if we want to grow. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We need the gospel. And for me, I remember starting to see this shift in my 20s, kind of coming out of my 20s and into my 30s. I started seeing things change for me. As I, as I came to the scripture, seeing promises, I'd come to Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You know what that told me? in all of my guilt and all of my dis depression and discouragement as I looked at how I wasn't measuring up, that told me that on my best day and on my worst day, I'm still a child of his. He doesn't unadopt his kids. And before the foundation of the world, he adopted me so I can have a steadiness in me when I fail and I can have a humility in me when I succeed. I'm his, I'm approved, I'm okay. And it changed me. I remember lying in bed like um, in my early 30s, laying next to Kelly, and I, I remember leaning over to her and just saying, this is a weird, babe, but uh, I feel happy for the first time in a long time. Promises did that. Promises did that. That's how we change. Gospel promises. News changes us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for promises. <laughs> we don't fight like the world does. We have better tools. We have gospel tools. We have news. And all of us in this room have done the rule-keeping thing to help us along. But what we needed was news. And every Sunday when we gather, God, we gather for news recitation. We are reciting news in these songs, in these sermons, in our prayers, in our liturgy, in our responsive readings, in the baptisms. We are reciting that Jesus has done it for me. And he has purchased for me the smile of God and the favor of God, and the power of God, and the sovereignty of God, and the glory of God. He has purchased it for me. God, get that into us. I want Stonegate Church to be different. I want us in this South Dallas area to be different and look different and, and actually have the qualities that Peter talked about in 2 Peter 1. 
but it's not going to come through just grit. Grit comes after granting. So grant us promises and help us hold on to them. When we suffer, when we stumble, as we're growing, help us, we pray. We love you, God, and as we sing, we rehearse the promises. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.